you ever had the idea that we live in a strange, confused culture where religious beliefs are more bizarre than believable, if you've come to the personal conclusion that the gospel is desperately needed to both liberate and redeem a culture that is decaying and depraved, and now is that time. In fact, it's always been time. It's always been that time. You go back into Grecian history, you travel back 2,000 years ago. In fact, you travel to a flourishing civilization that once was on the island of Crete where the worship of Dionysius was prominent, and you'll come to the same conclusion. Remains of a temple to that particular Greek god are still visible. His father was Zeus, the chief god of the Greeks. The birth of Dionysius was anything but normal. In fact, almost too bizarre to believe. While his mother was carrying him, Zeus decided to kill her, but first snatched from her womb the preborn body of Dionysius, and then before incinerating the mother with his glory, Zeus had the baby sewn into his own thigh. You can't make that up, can you? You certainly wouldn't believe it. But that isn't strange enough, just after the infant is born, he's kidnapped by the sons of the earth, known as the Titans, who didn't want to be ruled by this God. So they cooked little Dionysius and ate him. However, his heart, at just the last minute, was rescued in time by Zeus, who swallowed Dionysius' heart and then reconstructed the body of Dionysius. And then Zeus blasted the Titans with lightning, and from their ashes, mankind evolved, which for centuries was the Greek theory of origins. I can believe that, can't you? Dionysius grows up to create a religion of ecstasy and emotionalism saturated with drunkenness and sexual immorality. In fact, wine was such a critical part of this religion that Dionysius became known as the god of wine. The Romans picked up on this religion. They kind of liked it, and so they came up with their own a few versions or attachments, and they named him Bacchus, the Roman name, same god, the Roman god of wine. People involved in the religion engaged in ecstatic orgies of demonic possession and and sexual perversion, and uh, all the while in this state of drunkenness. They believed that religion was a, a transcendent experience and that drunkenness allowed you to lose control of your mind and just sort of open you up and drop all any and all inhibition and come in contact with the deity. And you think, that's really weird, that's strange. No, not really, it's not even new. Just read the personal testimony of Steve Jobs, whose biography I recently uh, finished, his version of Buddhism, and his, his search for elevated spiritual conscious experiences involved dropping acid and other mind-altering drugs so that he could, he believed, enter a state of mind where he believed he engaged with the spirit world. It's really not a new practice. For the followers of Dionysius and and Bacchus, their drug was alcohol, and they sort of lost all forms of restraint in their so-called connection with deity. In fact, in one excavated temple, you can see in the main section of the temple the remains of a well built a circular pit in the middle of the floor. There on the main section, the well is beautifully tiled. You can still see in pictures grapevines and naked figures. It was located there for worshipers engaged in one of their drunken, sexually saturated orgies to literally go and vomit their food and drink into that well they had been gorging themselves upon so they could simply go and do it again. 
I hate to tell you, it's gross, I know, but we got a little bit for lunch and maybe we'll get over it. But uh, they're, they're literally throwing up was their view of offering a sacrifice to their God. Thirty years or so earlier, before the gospel came to the island of Crete, through Paul's ministry, several Jews had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And while they're on that day, the church was created, they heard a message preached by a converted fisherman named Peter, and they were born again by faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They returned to their island and began to spread this truly liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. Thirty years after Pentecost, the apostle Paul visits the island with a young pastor named Titus. More than likely, Paul was visiting Crete after being uh, released from his first Roman imprisonment. He was given parole for about two to three years. Visited Crete during this particular time before he was rearrested and ultimately executed at the command of Nero. We're not told how long Paul was on the island of Crete, but you can only imagine the mission field. You can only imagine this island where its winemaking was world-renowned, where drunkenness was an epidemic, where deception had become the reputation of Cretans throughout the civilized world. Their sexually driven religion would surely lure someone's interest and devotion far more than a gospel message that required repentance and self-restraint and holy living. But the gospel had taken root by the power of God's Spirit. The Spirit of God had transformed the lives of people who had seen enough of Dionysius to know that peace and satisfaction weren't found at the bottom of a bottle, so to speak. That sacrifices to him were nothing more than self-destructing acts that one orgy after another had only left them more empty and more alone than ever before. Churches start springing up. Assemblies are devoted to the bits and pieces that they could recall. Information, perhaps missionaries that had come along as well. And the church had begun to grow. They were in serious jeopardy, however. Their spiritual health is hanging in the balance. False teachers had already begun to infiltrate the churches with their myths and speculations. They were pulling back in from the religions of Dionysius and others. Leaderless congregations were open prey and unprotected. What the church... On the island of Crete, needed was spiritual leadership. And so Paul tells Titus in chapter 1 and verse 5. So if you don't have your Bibles open yet, turn to Titus 1.5. We'll cover this verse, I think, most of it. This is the reason I left you in Crete, Titus, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Listen, the church in Crete needed the same thing the church needs today. Men, led by God's Spirit, 
committed to the scriptures, uncompromising in their gospel, fearless in their doctrine, blameless in their patterns of living, and pure in their personal relationships. What the church needed then, and what she needs today, is the same thing. The church needs shepherds. Men who will wear the mantle of leadership, understanding the gravity of it all, accepting the responsibilities of it all. Men who will feed the sheep and shepherd and protect and guard and nurture the flock of God. It's a call to men. I couldn't help but chuckle over the courage of a recent ad I read for Levi Strauss. Not exactly a theologically based organization. And they make jeans and dockers and khakis and a host of other clothing. But somebody sent this to me, so I looked it up. And sure enough, it, it, I actually found it hard to imagine that a secular company would be so willing to be so politically incorrect, especially in our confused culture where sexual identity is blurred, if not completely erased. They called their commercial ad a man festo emphasis on man. And I'll read it to you. You won't believe it. Once upon a time, men wore the pants and wore them well. (laughs) Women rarely had to open doors and little old ladies never had to cross the street alone. Men took charge because that's what they did. But somewhere along the way, the world decided it no longer needed men. Disco by disco, latte by non-fat latte. That's convicting. We'll forget that part. Men were stripped of their khakis and left stranded on the road between boyhood and androgyny, which means neither masculine nor feminine. They're not finished with the ad, but can you believe they're writing this? It continues. But today, there are questions our genderless society has no answers for. The world sits idly by as cities crumble, children misbehave, and those little old ladies remain on one side of the street. For the first time since bad guys, we need heroes. We need grown-ups. We need men to put down the plastic fork, step away from the salad bar, and and untie the world from the tracks of complacency. I I mean, this is a commercial by guys that make pants, okay? And then it finishes. It's time to get your hands dirty. It's time to answer the call of manhood. It's time to wear the pants. (laughs) I'm surprised somebody didn't sue the pants off them for suggesting that men ought to lead and nurture and help and there's some kind of unique call to manhood. My goodness. I'm dedicated to wearing khakis more often now as a result of my support of Levi Strauss. We're actually going to talk about what it means to answer the call to manhood in general when we get to chapter 2. And Paul is going to develop and deliver a radically counterculture definition through Titus to the church, and he's going to do the same thing for womanhood. But first and foremost is verse 5. Paul is going to tell Titus to identify men in the assembly who are effectively willing and qualified to, as it were, wear the pants in the assembly over whom God has granted authority and leadership and care. And so at the very outset, 
of this letter, you got to get ready for a politically incorrect message. In fact, today, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to talk about male headship, if you want to talk about male leadership, not only in the home, but in the church, you are becoming by that even more politically incorrect, not only in the world out there, but inside the evangelical church in here. You're out of step. But if Paul could tell Titus to create this kind of culture inside the church of the redeemed, located on the island of Crete, surrounded by sexual confusion, identity confusion, religious perversion, he certainly, he certainly can expect that we can do the same thing today by the redeeming, life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit. So you have to get ready for some politically incorrect messages. Now you might notice in this verse that all is not well among the Christians and the churches on the island of Crete. You might notice again in verse 5 that Paul tells Titus to set in order what remains. Set in order. It comes from the Greek verb. It's a compound word actually. Part of it is orthao from which we use, we use that word often in the same idea for orthopedics, the straightening of bones. The word ortho is more predominantly understood in the use of the word orthodontics. My wife and I invested heavily in that practice. <laughs> How many of you have had braces at some point in time? Look at all of the money we've spent on that. Well, I had braces growing up too. And I'm going to date myself here, but back then, when I was a boy, and I'm old enough to say that now, when I was a boy, back, way back then, none of it was flexible or plastic. You didn't choose colors for spacers. You had one color, and it was shiny metal. You were called metal mouth for a very good reason, right? Uppers and, and lowers. I, I had a really pronounced overbite and by the time I was in middle school, one of my two front teeth stuck out so badly that I could hardly close my lips. My friends joked that I could eat watermelon through a picket fence. <laughs> and those were my friends. <laughs> in fact, I'll tell you this. Several years later when I was in high school, my younger brothers used to love and go and get that one particular picture of my middle school uh, a school book picture. And there I was, big ears, first thing to grow in my whole body. Big ears, red hair, freckled face, and that one tooth sticking straight. And they'd laugh and they'd laugh and they'd laugh. I'm okay now. <laughs> Ten years of counseling have helped. Let me, let me tell you, it, it's worse. So i got to tell you, I was really glad for braces, and I was very grateful that my parents sacrificed for them. If you've had braces, though, you know they, they were a pain. They hurt. There's nothing quite like the smack of a basketball when you're wearing upper and lower braces in the face, right? But it was worth it all. That's the word Paul uses here. In fact, it's found here in the New Testament only this one time. Titus, I want you to go and straighten out crooked things. There are things that need to be set in order. In fact, Paul adds the little phrase, they remain. They remain. In other words, he hadn't been able to finish the job. 
It's never really finished. Setting into place proper leadership structures, organizing the assembly, relationships between the offices of deacon and elder and the congregation itself. There were broken things to mend. Church had been around for 30 years. There were crooked things to straighten out. And by the way, it would be painful. It would require extra attention. It would be emotionally costly. And the problems, just like your braces, would not be fixed overnight. It's going to take a lot longer than you want. But it would be worth it. But can you imagine Titus having this as his introduction? This is his job. Can you imagine him arriving in an established church and they're going to say to him, well, just what do you intend to do? And what does he say? I intend to straighten you out. And it's going to hurt. Well, great. Come on in. <laughs> Let's get started. No, they're going to say it. And, 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 and why do you think you can do that? He'd have this letter giving him apostolic authority. And he'd turn to about that verse we call verse number five. And he'd say, well, look, Paul left me here in Crete to set in order what remains and to point elders in every city as I've been directed by him. Now, the word Paul uses here in reference to these men who will serve in each church is this word, elder. It may not be as familiar within the Baptist congregations as it ought to be. The term elder was adapted from the life of the synagogue. Elder can be translated bearded. It refers to age. The elder was the common term for leadership. And since the early church was primarily Jewish, they immediately understood this term and it was perfectly suitable. In fact, by the time you get to Acts chapter 14, Luke is writing that they are appointing elders in every church. These would be the leaders who would determine church policy, Acts chapter 15. They would oversee the church affairs, Acts chapter 20. They would rule and teach and preach, 1 Timothy 5. They would exhort and refute false teaching, Titus 1.9. They would act as shepherds, setting an example for all the flock, 1 Peter 5. Now, if we dig a little deeper, we'll find that there are actually three terms that appear in the New Testament for this one office. The term presbyteros is often translated elder, and from the earliest beginnings of of the church, it was clear then that these presbyteroi were spiritually minded elders who were identified as having responsibility and and, uh, development and directional responsibilities in the church. The passages that use the term presbyteros seem to focus on the character of the office and the character of the man more than anything else. In fact, if you ransack your New Testament, you'll find a lot less about what an elder does as you do about who an elder is. Another New Testament term for the office is episkopos, usually translated bishop. Episcopos was a term the Greeks would immediately understand, where presbyteros would be a term that the Jewish converts would immediately understand. Bishops would have been immediately understood by the Gentile converts as someone who in their culture was given responsibility by the emperor to lead newly conquered city-states. The bishop was responsible not to the people conquered, but to the emperor who delegated to him the right to lead. 
In fact, that phrase, that term, uh, episkopos, is used of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 2, where he is called the episkopos of our souls. It's a wonderful phrase. He has the right to rule over our newly conquered lives. Wonderful nuance. So presbyteros and episkopos were two terms that emerged in the early New Testament church referring to the men who guarded and guided the church under their delegated authority and their accountability, which was to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Now you can easily see, by the way, just in these terms that I'm using, whether you've had Greek or not, how the Presbyterian and Episcopalian denominations created their names by simply transliterating these Greek terms. Episkopos equals... Episcopalian, presbyteros gives us the term Presbyterian, which is probably why Baptists have been so reluctant to use perfectly biblical titles for the office. Let me just say it's a lot more important for us to be biblical than Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Baptist, right? After all, we ought to be committed to the words of Scripture rather than and, and above anything else. I've had people say, well, I'm in a Baptist church. How do you have elders? Uh, you're, not a, you're not a Presbyterian church. I thought you were a Baptist church. No, we hope to be a biblical church, and those terms are biblical. Those, by the way, who lead the church will one day give an account for the souls entrusted to their church, and they're not going to be asked the question, you know, were you a good Baptist or Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Methodist or whatever leader, and did you follow the traditional expectations of your denomination? No, they and we all will be asked as elders, were you faithful to your role as revealed in Holy Scripture? Did you do in the 21st century what I, the Spirit of God, commanded the shepherds to do in the 1st century? You see, the culture's changed, but the role didn't. The cultures shifted, but the objectives didn't. The goal never moved. Did you wear the mantle of a shepherd well? There's one more term. The third one that clearly defines this office. It's used less often. It's translated pastor or shepherd. It's the term poimen. In its plural form, poimenos. It's also used of Christ by Peter who calls Jesus the shepherd of our souls. 1 Peter 2.25. The apostle Peter also used the term again when he referred to Jesus Christ as our chief shepherd. 1 Peter 5.4. All, all the under shepherds, elders, bishops, pastors are underneath the authority of the chief shepherd. We as leaders are accountable not to the flock but to him. We don't speak for the flock. We speak for Christ to the flock. And that, of course, can be distorted and misused and misapplied. Therein lies the protection of a group of men committed to the Scriptures and to the Spirit of God holding one another accountable and to the authority of Jesus Christ. Little wonder that such care then would be given In fact, the solution for the churches on the island of Crete would be found in these men so burdened and qualified for such a task as this. Now, the term poimen speaks to the feeding of the flock. Feeder, pastor, means pasture. He's a feeder. 
And it's interesting to me when Paul categorically speaks of men given to the church as gifts. He could have chosen any one of these three titles, but he chose the term poimenos in its plural form. Almost as if to say, look, of all the things that you can do, make sure you feed the flock. Feed the flock of God which is among you. 1 Peter 5.2. Peter, do you love me? I do. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? I do. Then tend to my lambs. Peter, do you love me? I do. Shepherd my sheep. Lead them into green pastures, well fed and taken care of. That's why it isn't optional for elders to deliver the word to the flock and expound on it and teach it and apply it and exhort obedience to it. Because everything else is barren ground. This is the fertile field of green pastures for the souls of the flock. I remember a woman meeting with a pastor in town. She eventually came into town and was concerned about the church she would attend. She had her list of questions who asked the head pastor made an appointment with him, and she began immediately down her list. Did he hold to the Scriptures? What doctrine did they believe? Did he teach the Scriptures verse by verse? And after a couple of minutes, he actually interrupted her and said, I know what kind of church you're looking for, and let me tell you, we're not into that, but I recommend you visit Colonial. I hear they do that over there. And that was the end of the appointment, and she came here. Now, that isn't a compliment necessarily to me alone. It is a commendation of this entire body of elders that we have here, whose passion is to deliver the Word of God to our culture in this generation. This phrase, sola scriptura, isn't just my idea. It is the statement of your leaders who believe that our opinions and our counsels and our creeds take second place to the Scripture's alone. And it's a distant second place. I can't begin to tell you how incredibly blessed I've been over the last 25 years to serve with men who, with only a few exceptions, which is a testimony in and of itself to the goodness of God, that have stayed the course, that have remained committed to holy living, that have met the qualifications of Titus 1, that have held to sound doctrine and a biblical philosophy of ministry and with humility and graciousness have given their lives over to serve the flock of God. We have been blessed by God as a church. And so is every church that has men faithfully adhering to the character and authority and passion of biblical leadership. And it's going to take men who will run counter-culture in their thinking, and in their living. And frankly, I believe that the growing influence of this church ministry and this pulpit is a testimony to the fact that after 25 years, I have never once had a deacon or an elder come up to me and say, you know, we really wish you'd do something other than teaching passages of Scripture. We really wish you wouldn't take the Bible so seriously. Why do you spend so much time going through books of the Bible? Well, on that last one, they may have been tempted, but I never heard any one of them say it. I've heard nothing other than keep at it. Keep at it. I shared with our guests at the Wisdom Banquet this past week around 650 friends who showed up, most 
many who are part of this church, that God is now beginning to use this ministry of the Word to spread. It's almost as if He's been waiting, and I view myself as a part of it, not, not really the one leading it. But as I step back and look at it, 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 it's amazing to me. It's almost as if God has said, I've been, I've been waiting and watching to see if you'd qualify the message, if you'd negotiate on the terms of, of clear doctrine, if you'd fudge on the truth of the Word. And it's almost as if He said in the last 12, 24 months, okay, now we're going to let the Word run to and fro from this place. I shared with our guests what you'd be equally interested in hearing in the last four months Wisdom for the Heart has revamped its website, which now makes available every sermon in transcript form and audio form free of charge to anybody who can download it or read it or print it. It's all being given away for free. And in these last four months, we have had sermons downloaded 264,000 times. And it wasn't just my mother. I know she likes getting it, (laughs) but she doesn't have an iPod, so I know it didn't hurt. we, We don't know who really they are. We do know the countries that are logging in from. And I'll quickly, very quickly read you the list just in the last four months. The USA, of course, Canada, India, Romania, England, Wales, Scotland, Puerto Rico, Nigeria, Belgium, Bolivia, Jamaica, New Zealand, Norway, Honduras, Japan, Mexico, Paraguay, Brazil, Colombia, Indonesia, Costa Rica, Malaysia, Philippines, Germany, Guam, Spain, France, Sri Lanka, South Africa, Zambia, Australia, Ireland, Barbados, Ghana, Kenya, South Korea, Sudan, Ukraine, Uganda, Egypt, Guatemala, Croatia, Netherlands, Panama, Peru, Portugal, Qatar, Slovakia, Venezuela, Argentina, Aruba, Bulgaria, Switzerland, Chile, Denmark, Ecuador, Italy, Kuwait, Latvia, Tanzania, Uruguay, Russia, Singapore, and Taiwan. Amen? It's amazing, isn't it? I don't know about you, but that just tells me people are hungry. And I can't tell you how surprised I am. All we're doing is what everybody ought to be doing. But maybe the fact that it's beginning to pick up so much speed is simply to our shame. Everybody isn't doing it. Our country may very well, and I believe it probably is, be deserving of the condemnation of God delivered to the shepherds of Israel when he said they were feeding themselves instead of feeding the flock. But this is our commission. To preach and teach the truth, to lead the flock, to guide and guard, and all those other derivatives of forms and functions. And so to summarize these three terms, the term elder refers to the character of the office. The term bishop refers to the authority of the office. And the term pastor refers to the passion of the office. And from these three terms along with all the passages where these leaders appear, what emerges then is the role of the spiritual leader. Now, by way of very quick uh, overview, let me give you four principal characteristics of this role. First, the elders are plural. 
There's a lot of healthy debate out there on this subject, and I don't want to bring all of it in here. But I will say that in our effort to follow the New Testament, it is interesting that there is not one explicit reference to a one-pastor, single-elder-ruled church. In fact, every place where the term elder is used, it's plural, except when John and Peter use the word to refer to themselves, which then, of course, would be singular. Now, this doesn't mean that there weren't congregations ruled by one pastor or elder. It's just that none are mentioned. Proponents of a one elder rule say that there were elders in a city church that was composed of individual churches, house churches, where single elders had oversight. But then all those house churches would would get together in a city periodically, and then you had plurality of elders, and that's why you had plurality. But the fact remains, the church was seen as one church in that city. Decisions were made by collective processes of elders in reference to the whole church and not the individual parts. So even in that argument, you still have a plurality involved in decision-making. Still others refer to the letters sent by Christ to individual churches in Revelation 2 and 3. They argue that since the letters to the churches were delivered to a singular angel, angelos, you could translate it messenger, that then this was a reference to that church having only one pastor or one elder. The problem with that view is, is we're guessing In fact, if the angel was indeed a pastor in Revelation 2 and 3, it would just as easily reinforce the concept of a leader among leaders, a first among equals, since we're not told that this elder didn't represent a group of elders. We aren't told he was the only one. In fact, we know that one of the churches that received a letter did indeed have more than one elder, the church at Ephesus, and it was to the elders that Paul challenged them to be on the alert. The principle of a leader among leaders is illustrated in the church at Jerusalem with the prominence of James, the pastor-teacher, who was the leader among the other leaders, directing the church toward a final decision regarding Gentile converts. We're also told more specifically that some elders are deserving of greater honor than others in the same church. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 that those elders who work hard at preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor, a word that more than likely refers to remuneration, certainly respect, which, by the way, also informs us that all the elders in a church body aren't necessarily preaching or teaching, though they must be able to handle the word. That's one of the qualifications of being an elder. And it also implies that ruling authority was given to some elders in a greater form or fashion than other elders in the same church body. What's important to understand, and you're going to forget all of this, I imagine, but some of it perhaps. But I want you to know this there's not one passage that explicitly says that one elder has all of the authority in the church. In fact, that would be a characteristic of a cult not a church. 
when taken at face value, if you set aside your denominational biases and, and prejudices and you come to the Scriptures and the New Testament epistles and try to figure out, okay, how exactly does this work, you find the Scriptures clearly indicating that elders are plural even in and appointed in singular churches. And the sharing of responsibility and authority was the sign of a healthy church. Titus, here's what the churches need on the island of Crete. Elders in every city. Have these men lead. We had a woman visit our church for several weeks before deciding to leave. I know that happens a lot and I'll never know about it. But she wrote me an email telling me why she had visited and why she was leaving. She wrote a number of things I I, I can't repeat. But one of the things that she wrote was, and I quote, The problem I have with your church is that there are just too many men in leadership. I didn't know whether to write her a thank you note for making that observation or what. But can you imagine? What a blessing. The elders are plural. Secondly, the elders are providers. I've already touched on the subject of teaching and feeding, but let me just say a few more things about it here. There are elders in churches that love the idea of ruling and power and authority and prominence. In fact, the early church had to deal with one of them named Diotrephes. But shepherding and feeding is somewhere lower down on the list. I mean, that takes work. That takes private obscurity in study. We'd rather do everything in public. Walter Kaiser points out the anemic state of affairs in the American church because of this issue, and he placed the responsibility squarely on the shoulders of elders and pastors who are doing everything but studying and preaching. And teaching the Word of God. He says, and I quote him, It is no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health. She has been languishing because she's been fed junk food. All kinds of artificial preservatives and all sorts of unnatural substitutes have been served up to her. And as a result, biblical malnutrition has afflicted the same generation that is taking such giant steps to make sure its physical health is never damaged by using food that is harmful to their bodies. At the same time, a spiritual famine is resulting from the absence of any genuine preaching of the Word of God. And I would add my amen to that and my own observation that church leaders in America now are becoming experts at dissecting life and the human experience rather than simply treating the word of life as if it had meaning for today. In our generation, ladies and gentlemen, the average church leader can quote with ease Peter Drucker, but not the Apostle Peter. They can easily bring out insights from John Maxwell for leadership, but not the Apostle John. Now, there's nothing wrong with Maxwell or Drucker. But what you learn and what you graze upon as a leader is what you will feed the flock. And the Bible is being relegated down there to some kind of proof-texting concordance that we'll pull out every once in a while as we talk about the human condition and maybe say something about a Bible verse. And all of the, the sweep of modern church leadership and manuals on how to pastor have affected the philosophy of ministry now to where pastors, even in the evangelical church, refuse to take a stand on anything controversial. They are refusing, ladies and gentlemen, frankly, to wear the pants. 
My father and I were talking on one occasion recently about how pastors are influenced by the material they're reading through the week. And I'm so blessed by this church, by the way, and giving me a, a library allowance that I've been able to build up over the years. Good books, solid commentaries, good resources, history, culture. We were talking about how pastors are, are, are reading all this leadership stuff and new ways of doing things. And, and not that we're against new ways of doing things. We do things new ways all the time. But sort of relegating the philosophy of the church and ministry to maybe the latest fad. They're being influenced by all this stuff. And I said, Dad, do you think that th- these men are being influenced by, by the writings of popular men? in more ways than they know it. And my father, who's now been serving 54 years as a missionary, said to me something I never forgot, simply because it was so simple and yet so profound. He said, you know, Stephen, when I was a boy growing up on the farm, we could always tell when our cow, Bessie, got into the onions. You could taste it in the milk. We as leaders feed others what we are grazing upon ourselves. Titus is going to call these men to an undiluted, unmixed, unsoured truth, which is the role of the elder to see that the flock is fed the meat and the milk of the word, cared for and directed and guided biblically. And you know what the greatest joy of any elder is? Any genuine elder, the greatest joy is said, verbalized so well by the Apostle John who said it this way. There's, I, I have no greater joy than to know that my children, my spiritual children are walking in what? The truth. That's the greatest joy. That those under my care know and live and walk in the truth. The elders are plural. They are providers. Thirdly, they are protective. We'll actually get into this point later on in chapter 1 as Titus informs the elders that they are to refute those who contradict doctrine. And that'll be interesting. Our job is to warn and protect the flock, just as fathers do in the home. So men do in the church who lead Fathers in individual homes warn their sons of many things, right? Fathers in the home warn their daughters of young men, right? I can appreciate the answer of Charles Barkley, that eminent theologian, (laughs) basketball Hall of Famer, who gave to a reporter who once asked him, here's his answer. The reporter asked him, how is he going to handle his young daughter's future boyfriends? He said, well, I figure if I kill the first guy, word will spread. (laughs) I love that. I never stopped warning you, Paul said. Be on guard, he says to the Ephesian elders, for yourselves and for all the flock over whom or among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd, there's the word poimain, to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, For I know, listen, for I know that after my departure, after I sail away, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That is, they don't care about the flock. They don't. 
They want their own following. Or they want money. Or they want position or prominence. They really don't care about the flock. The wolves are coming. Get ready, he said. Therefore, be on the alert. Philip Keller, in his wonderful book, taken from his many years raising and tending sheep, wrote, and I quote, this warning reminds me of the behavior of sheep when under attack from dogs, cougars, bears, and wolves. He had seen it all. Often in blind fear, they will stand rooted to the spot, watching their companions being cut to shreds. The predator then will easily pounce from one to another, raking and tearing them with tooth and claw. And meanwhile, the other sheep may even act as if they do not hear or recognize the carnage going on around them. It's as though they were totally oblivious to the peril of their own position. An elder carries that as a burden on his heart. Charles Jefferson, who pastored in the late 1800s, and I'm going to tell, and in fact, I'm telling pastors, if you want to read stuff worthy of reading, you've got to go back to the 1800s and everything in between, just throw away most of it. He wrote this, The journey from the cradle to the grave is hazardous. If every man is surrounded by perils, if the universe is indeed alive with forces hostile to the soul, then watchfulness becomes one of the most critical of all the elder pastor's responsibilities. Elders are to be protectors, watchmen, defenders, and guardians of God's people. Perhaps that's why one national Christian leader answered a reporter this way when he was asked, what is the most important quality for a leader, a Christian leader in a church to possess? And his answer struck me as interesting. He said in a word, courage. Courage. It may be true more than ever to discipline sin in the church, to confront internal strife and division in the church, to name sin in the face of growing cultural approval, to stand against doctrinal error, to refute false teaching and challenge false teachers, to literally lay down your life for the sake of the flock, for the benefit of the flock, for the protection of the flock, demands, among other qualities, no doubt, courage. And that's something you can pray for, for us. Fourthly, the elders have priority. They are plural, they are providers, they are protective, and they have priority. In other words, they rule the flock They are to be obeyed. The church, ladies and gentlemen, as counterculture as this is going to sound, especially to American ears, the church, according to the New Testament, is not a democracy. It's not even a republic. Elders are not elected officials so that they might represent their various constituencies that put them into office. The elders are not representatives of the people to bring the opinions of people into a boardroom. In fact, they are not accountable to the people. They are accountable to God who has set them over in leading the people. So the apostle Peter would charge the elders to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight 
not under compulsion. In other words, if they're making you do it, don't do it. There are a lot of things you can do in the church. Don't do that. But voluntarily, according to the will of God. 1 Peter 5.2 Elders do not speak for the people. They speak to the people on behalf of Jesus Christ who has given them a message that in any culture and in every generation never changes. Peter goes on to warn every elder at the same time, encourage them. And when the chief shepherd appears, you, he's speaking to elders, you will receive this unique crown of glory. In other words, the elders are going to one day give an account to him and he's going to reward them accordingly. The writer of Hebrews says that same line of thinking, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls. That tells us, ladies and gentlemen, that none of you will ever give an account for my soul, but I will give an account for yours. Our elders will give an account for yours. Jonathan Edwards, the father of the Great Awakening, believed that at the bema that he would be standing there next to Christ as everyone in his flock over whom he had been given authority and leadership responsibilities as they were reviewed and his ministry would be reviewed to them. The writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who give an account. And then he has this to the congregation. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. Let me tell you something, beloved. After 25 years of ministry here at this church, I want you to know, you have brought me great joy. Great joy. I speak on behalf of our elder team and, and, and our deacons, nearly 80 of us. Isn't that wonderful? 80 men committed to the Word of God, the Spirit of God, who are giving their lives for your benefit and your growth and your protection and your care. I know I speak for them too. You have brought us great joy. I think we ought to covenant together anew that we all may together bring our chief shepherd great joy. Very little grief but great joy as we love Him and serve Him together. Our benediction is just going to be singing a chorus we've sung before, but as I thought back through the lyrics of I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul rejoice. Take joy, my King. Find joy in what we're singing and how we're living. So let's sing that together. Let's sing. I love
people said, Amen. Amen.